You're listening to The Capital Table. Private capital markets have been evolving for many years, but never more so than in recent times. Take a seat at The Capital Table with leading experts discussing insights into the private equity and M&A world, and take away the knowledge you need to excel in a rapidly changing marketplace. We know this is one table you'll leave feeling full and satisfied. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Capital Table, part two of our little mini-series on ESG with Joe Holman, who leads our ESG practice. I'm Steve Brady, partner with Witham and leader of our transaction advisory practice. And Joe, welcome back to part two of our discussion. Thank you, Steve, for having me back. I'm Joe Holman. I am the practice leader at Witham of ESG, and I help you know, lead the charge for uh, ESG advisory practice here. So welcome back, everyone. Again, the first episode, if you didn't miss it, please uh, listen to that really great discussion on kind of the current trends at a macro level on ESG and the really boiling it down to the risks and opportunities in a deal. And obviously for our audience, that's centric to what everything we're talking about is how you assess risks and opportunities in a potential transaction. So, you know, as we take that and launch into episode two, Joe, you know, let's, we're going to focus um, on the due diligence and investment process and how ESG weaves into this. So can you give me an example of how a buyer and or seller uses ESG and their due diligence process for a potential transaction? All right. Well, I want to start, take a step back and show that ESG due diligence come from an established framework. So the established framework that ESG comes from is something called SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which actually got merged into, which is kind of funny, but it got merged into the ISSB, which is the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is overseen by International GAAP. And we're going to talk more about that later on today's podcast, but just know SASB is really the cornerstone stone for the ISSB. And what SASB did was went out and looked at what's financially material to a company. And they looked at 77 different industries and 20 indicators, I forget the exact number of indicators, where they would say these are financially material indicators of, of that's something that would affect a company that should be considered. And they created actually, when you go through all of the indicators, there's over a thousand of them with a spreadsheet that we have when looking at various deals in various industries. So that's the basis or the framework for our ESG due diligence are the SASBs and how they relate to those 77 industries, which got merged into ISSB. Now you ask the difference between buy and seller. You mentioned buyer or seller. One should know that just like buying a house or selling a house, the buyer is looking for risk. They're looking for reasons to negotiate the price. They're looking for problems and they're looking for concessions or unseen opportunities, which shows value that maybe the seller doesn't see. The seller, on the other hand, is selling their ESG. Just, and that's really where it's kind of like the flip side. And that's really where due diligence comes in is. You're not going to believe everything the seller tells you. So your due diligence goes after what the seller does. And you look for KPIs, look for items that will identify problems 
on the seller side. So everything we're going to talk about from here on out is really on the buy side. And just if it's on the sell side, you flip it around and you either gloss over it, you ignore it, or you highlight it because it makes you look good. But on the buy side, you're looking for a real buy. So you're looking for KPIs. And a good example of a KPI is workplace injuries. So you look at, for a manufacturer, you will look at what's the injury rate for the manufacturer. And an injury rate typically is indicative of ineffective safety standards. And ineffective safety standards are are indicative of, or usually a deeper problem, which is sloppy management, poor quality, perhaps on the shop floor. Consequences, again, are more downtime, higher insurance premiums, lost customers because your products waste, because if you have problems on your production floor, you're probably making more mistakes, generating more waste, and in the worst case, fines and lawsuits, et cetera. So you really want to look at workplace injuries from a manufacturing standpoint. And what you, as an ESG professional, what we would look at is we would look at work worker comp claims and trends in that. So all manufacturers are going to have claims against them from a workers' comp standpoint, compensation standpoint. So you want to see what are those claims about? How did they come about? So you want to look in a little bit more detail to see if there's any systemic trends in there. And then you also read through their safety procedures and you get managers' views on why, you know, what happens. And there are not good benchmarks, but there are rules to be able to see um, are they outside the norm for a company like themselves? Is their insurance much higher than a company, a similar company from a workers' comp standpoint? So you look at those types of factors. You also may consider things, other things that cause problems or that would come up with because you had poor safety standards, which is back to sloppy management. So you look to see, is the amount of waste being generated by the company, you know, exceptionally high or are there spikes? Did something happen recently? Uh, are sales returns coming about? There, maybe there's some lawsuits out there or potential lawsuits or settlements. So those are all things that you can get out of by work, looking at worker injury rates. So that is one of the items that not only do we look at, but in private equity, that's one of the general uh, first lines of questioning. If you have, what's your injury rate for workers? So that's one example. Another example is staff turnover, which sometimes get, is done in the quality of earnings, sometimes not. But we do want to focus on, you know, turnover is bad. If you're trying to build EBITDA, you need more staff. And if you think of like a SaaS company where technical skilled employees are very difficult to get, uh, that creates turnover. And the way most companies mitigate that turnover is hiring foreign nationals, moving their operations to offshore operation to offshore. And those cause additional risks. You have foreign nationals working in the U.S. You have immigration issues, visa issues. Visas cost money. Are they legitimately here? Are there visas? Do you have a high-priced guy or value guy? How high-value employee whose visa is running out? Things you might want to know. You also, on offshore, lose some control, intellectual property. You have culture, political problems. You know, move your stuff out of China type of movements that happened a couple of years ago. So as an ESG consultant, what we want to look at is some key 
KPIs for turnover. So the first one we want to do is we want to establish percentages of employees that are technically skilled, that are foreign. Where are your operations at? Do you have a lot of people offshore? If you do have foreign people, what, you know, what is their visa situation? So we want to get a baseline. Then we want to measure employee turnover and compare that to industry averages. That's available generally by ADP and other types of services where we can see how do you fit in. But what's also very important to think about is what is the future growth plans? When you're, when you're buying a company, you're expecting to double, triple the size of the company. You might be doubling or tripling the workforce. If you have significant turnover, it makes it much more difficult. We look to employee engagement. Now, that's the soft skills. So a lot of companies have surveys. We look to see how those surveys are. Uh, surveys aren't necessarily always so honest. We look to like internet sites like Glassdoor or Indeed. And honestly, those are like the Yelp of, of employees where they complain. But you also find some very common uh, problems. We found a situation, a company we were looking at where the CFO or the CEO was running around and chasing the young girls that was mentioned by a couple of people in the glass door comments. That was bad. You know, you mentioned that to the deal team. The deal team can bring that up to management and ask them, you know, we're reading this. What's this mean? We also then get into recruitment strategies and retention strategies. So recruitment is, and this is DEI sort of comes in, is are you casting a big net or are you just focused on a certain type of employee? DEI is about getting diversity, not necessarily affirmative action, just making sure that you cast a big enough net to capture all the qualified people and not just keeping it to the Ivy League, for instance, go extend your horizons. And then retention strategies, there's really two retention strategies, or really three. One, have people work less and quality life, um, which doesn't really always play out well for a company that wants to grow a lot. But you can offer a lot of non-compensation benefits, like working at home, some family leave, things like that, um, vacations, where people will want to stay because they like the environment. Also, the other way is just pay a lot of money to the people. Uh, but both ways are strategies to keep people. And in the tech world, that's something that you got to consider. And those all have cost and they all affect your modeling. Um, and then the last one, I just want to say, high turnover is could be a problem of just the industry or it could be low morale by management. And those are all things that we try to look at in those KPIs that we went through. So that's another one. There's so many different things. You have material sourcing, you know, from Congo, you got to consider, or palm oil from, you know, child's labor with coconut, you know, and then they have, the world has regulations against that. And do you have processes in place to look for those types of things? So those are areas that, you know, we will cover, but we, in those two examples, I want to show those are the risk, what they were, and then how we measured those risks. We look for the first indicator, and then we look for things that are sort of, you know, cascade into problems from the first problem. Yeah, those are, are great examples, Joe. And again, for our audience, you know, having worked with Joe and his team on deals, you know, it really is fascinating the view they take on a lot of these and other risks. 
and um, you know the information that is relevant to the deal process to the investment process is really really valuable. Uh, let's switch gears just a a hair, Joe. I mean, so many private equity firms, as you pointed out early hundred earlier hundred trillion asset under management who have trillion. declared yeah trillion to declared um, you know ESG as part of their investment process. Is ESG diligence different for them versus those who are not officially using those standards in their investment process? So an M&A team and a, pre, and a private equity deal team on pre-investment due diligence do the same thing. We have the same playbook when we work with both groups and they consider the same factors. However, there is a big difference. And the big difference is post-closing. So a PE firm, when they're doing a transaction, they're also thinking about they're going to own this company after it closes. So any problems that they find during pre-investment due diligence, they're going to own at post-investment due diligence. And many of them have, many of them have a 100-day plan. And part of that 100-day plan is addressing the problems that they learned in pre-investment due diligence. But they private equity firm wants to build enterprise value. So a deal, an M&A guy who's doing a deal on the buy side or, or just cares about doing the transaction. But the private equity guy wants to build um, enterprise value over, say, a course of five to seven years. So they'll consider and use ESG in engagement and look for more focus on opportunities and ways to increase the value of the company using ESG strategies. So that is really the main difference is that engagement post-closing where they're trying to build enterprise value, where the M&A guy is just trying to unload it on some, on some <laughs> poor person. Right. Well, at the end of the day, that is what it's about, creating value after the deal. So that's an excellent point. You've touched on many of the differences between financial diligence or what are some of the unique aspects of ESG, but you know, what are some of the other differences between financial diligence and what you're doing on the ESG side on diligence phase? Well, so financial diligence, and that's a great question because, you know, you think about it, ESG diligence, financial diligence, compliance diligence, we all have this due diligence stuff. Financial diligence is well-established and it's based on financial and accounting structures that have been audited, reviewed. There's internal controls involved. There's a controller, um, typically speaking, not the mom and pop shops where it's all cash-based. You, you know, in a real company, they have real accounting records and those real accounting records provide real information, a source of information for the financial due diligence teams. So when they do their quality of earnings, they can go and ask for what's the accounts receivable turnover, what's the day's collection, what's the day's in inventory, and all of that information is relatively available. And more importantly, that information is benchmarked. So think about it. You can look at the, you get the statistics of days and in, in, days of accounts receivable, and you look at a particular company industry, and you say, well, that is totally outside the benchmark of every other company like this company. So you know there's a problem there. Yet other companies that have in a different industry 
So you can have 90 days receivable. That's not so bad. Well, and so you go, you get that benchmarking. I guess that gets the idea. In ESG due diligence, one, you don't have a structure to get the information from. There's no single set source of information. You don't have the CFO to go to. You got to go to operations to get certain information. Got to go to HR to get certain information. You got to talk to, you go to the internet to pull off whatever you can find costs upon the company. There's a lot of different sources to get, you know, where, and it's dispersed. And it's also not quality information. You don't necessarily know what checks, controls, or the quality of the information you're pulling out. So now you have to look at it with a slanted eye and say, is this really good information? Or is this something the guy just kind of came out at the top of his head? Because there's really no accountability when you ask the operations manager, you know, certain questions about what's happening on the manufacturing floor. So that's the first real problem. And then the second problem in ESG due diligence is there's no benchmarks. You hear about benchmarks. You can look at bench things, but the reality of it is there's no real benchmarks across industries that are applicable that you can really, that are actionable. You know, you, there's benchmarks you read about, but they're not actionable benchmarks. So those are the two big differences I see. And it's a problem for the, us in the ESG due diligence is not being able to say that the guy next door that's just like your peer um, is operating better or worse than you. Well, it reminds me of many years ago and when financial diligence, as we know it today, you know, started to evolve. So I think, you know, kind of the moral of that story, Joe, it's the early days of ESG and from a structure standpoint, benchmarks, as you point out, and certainly, you know, exciting times as you lead our practice into the future and in the world trying to define what ESG means in the investment process. So as we wrap up here, what changes do you see coming down the road that could put ESG, let's call it, on an equal footing with financial reporting? And uh, you know, what what are we looking at? Um, okay, I'll be kind of quick because I want to let you know that I mentioned ISSB, the SASB earlier on. So ISSB under International Gap has created a framework for sustainability reporting of financially material factors that for that that affect companies across 77 industries. So it'd be specific to an industry, specific to a company and how they do the calculation and what they need to report. And it's being adopted now through most of Europe. And you'll start seeing these reports come out in the year next year or the year after. And those reports will also most likely be audited. So you have consistent information within an industry being reported that's verified by an independent source. So you have quality of information. And by the way, this is the exact information an analyst would be asking those companies for. The second benefit is that information then can, can be compiled by the reference data companies of the world and create benchmarks using that very information. So I do think that you're correct in saying these are the early days. And thanks to the ISSB and international gap, you're going to start seeing benchmarks. And those benchmarks hopefully will trickle into the United States. And one point on the private company side, I just want to mention there's a group called ESG Convergence Initiative out there, which is an asset group of asset owners, again, with $3 trillion in assets, not quite a hundred, but 3 trillion is a good enough number. And they're asking their managers that they invest with 
to provide transparency on portfolio companies and provides uh, 18 statistics to report to those asset owners on each individual portfolio companies. And what those portfolio, what the asset owners are trying to do is develop industry-wide standards across those same 77 industries based on SASB so that they want private companies to have benchmarks, just like the public companies will have benchmarks. And they're doing this by basically um, holding the manager captive because they're investing, you know, hundreds of billion dollars in the manager and the manager wants to report it. So that's where we're going with this. I think we're going to start seeing benchmarks and we're going to start seeing verified reporting on ESG in the future. I look forward to seeing this continue to evolve and probably at a quicker pace uh, as time goes on, Joe. So thanks for this you know, really great discussion on ESG and how it impacts our audience as they're looking at potential investments. So um, again, to our audience, thanks for joining us. And Joe, you know, thanks so much for your insights. Again, thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to The Capital Table. For more information, please visit witham.com. Thank you for listening.